Welcome to the Library of Mistakes, changing the world one mistake at a time. Hello, my name is Professor Russell Napier, and I'm the keeper of the Library of Mistakes. What is a library of mistakes? Well, yes, it is a room full of books. It is that form of library. We have one in Edinburgh, we have one in Lausanne in Switzerland, and then there's one in Pune in India. Why does a library of mistakes exist? Well, it exists to help us study human decision-making under uncertainty, particularly in the field of finance, how decisions have been made, and of course, given our name, mistakes, how they've been made, and hopefully how we avoid those mistakes in the future. I'm delighted to welcome Jared Biebler, author of Iceland's Secret. There were many stories of the global banking crisis, but really none of them quite like Jared's. Many people were investors in the boom, as was Jared. But how many of them then moved to become a regulator in the bust in a country that famously put many bankers in jail? Something that didn't necessarily happen everywhere else. Jared, welcome. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Russell. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, the great thing about your book is it's both sides of the story. Because prior <laughs> prior to joining the regulator, uh, you arrived, uh, as people can perhaps already tell, you arrived from America to this country, which I think you know little about, but find yourself in the middle of what is one of the greatest booms of all time in terms of encompassing a country, a society, a banking system on every level. And you walked in as an outsider to witness this. So tell us a little bit about uh, why you ended up in Iceland and what it was like to come in as an outsider to what was when you arrived in 2004, I suppose, already a party, but it was to become a party on an immense yeah. level. So that story is a story that, you know, we'd, we'd love to hear. Well, so I was looking for a little sabbatical, a little little time off, because I had been on Wall Street for about five years, working really hard, building the back office for one of the biggest banks on Wall Street. And I was I was working in Tokyo, London, and New York. And I was just, yeah, I was working all the time. And I stumbled on a similar type of job in Iceland, and I, I knew that it wouldn't be uh, it wouldn't be ninety hours a week if I if I went to Iceland, but much much different, much more uh, relaxed and nice work culture there. So I stumbled into an interesting job, and I decided, well, I'll do this for a year. So I moved there in two thousand four, and almost right away, the the um, yeah, like you said, the craziness of of those years was was more and more apparent to me. One of the first things is I, I moved into a beautiful apartment in Vesterbayer, which is the west end of Reykjavik. And there were just, uh, this is on the approach path for the Reykjavik domestic airport. And there were, every time I walked down the street to walk to the city or to walk to the store, there was a private jet. I had never seen anything like that. I'd never even seen a, I don't think I'd seen many private jets in the air. I mean, I like airplanes, so I always look at them. I'd never really, and I was starting to get familiar with types of private jets. That was strange because Reykjavik itself, it especially that neighborhood, it feels like a fishing village. Maybe in, maybe in Scotland or definitely where I'm from in New England, it feels like a fishing village in Maine. Imagine a fishing village in Maine with private jets going over. And you, you obviously questioned it. What was the rest of Iceland thinking about this? Were they questioning how this could be sustainable or just enjoying the party? I think, you know, if, and I get into this a bit in the book, I think you need to understand the history of Iceland a bit. It was the poorest country in Europe after the Second World War. And it had been the poorest country in Europe for probably seven, eight hundred years. 
It was a miserable place to live. People lived in, really in the ground, in sod houses until the, around the First World War era. Um, there were no roads until, until the last century. Um, people got around on, on horseback if they had a horse. Most people couldn't afford. And everyone was living on little farms scattered around the, the coast. There had been uh, huge, actually, the volcanic eruption that caused the French Revolution started in Iceland. Of course, that was the Hecla. Or sorry, that was, um, it's escaping me now. Um, well, look, it really doesn't matter because most of us can't pronounce the names of Iceland. So anyway, it was a place that was, that was very poor, um, but a very proud place. Uh, we had the, a parliament running since the year 930. Um, and Iceland has the oldest prose literature in Europe. So if you combine the pride plus a little bit of um, debt-fueled liquidity coming in to the country, people start to say, well, this is our time. This is our time to shine. Yeah. And, that, well, was and the, think, that was the feeling. The thing behind us was the deregulation of the banking system. So often in financial history, it's a deregulation of a financial system that creates uh, what seemed to be great opportunities and therefore believable because you've come from regulated to deregulated and you can kind of believe that these are new viable commercial opportunities. And of course, that's exactly what happened in Iceland. I think all of the banks had been recently deregulated. They were all maybe slowly or quickly taken over by entrepreneurs, but maybe you could explain why the banks were, they're always important in a boom, but maybe in this particular occasion, you could explain why the, these Icelandic banks became just so incredibly important for this boom and, and also why they were able to get so much finance uh, offshore as well as, as onshore. Yeah, they... I mean, they, they got most of their finance offshore. They quickly exhausted their local deposit reserves, uh, what they could what they could get locally. The country only has a few hundred thousand people. And these banks had been kind of sleepy institutions. One was called the Agriculture Bank. Another was called Landsbanki, which is the Lands Bank. Um, and they were privatized kind of in a slapdash way between the late 90s and, and like 2003. Um and they were able to, but they were able to borrow, for example, from Deutsche and the other German lenders and, and the lenders in the continent, they were able to borrow a lot. Um, you know, if the Germans never met a loan, they didn't want to give. <laughs> the Icelanders never met a loan they wouldn't, they wouldn't sign on to. So um, that's another thing about Icelandic culture. It's a boom and bust place. Um, it's a, it's a make hay while the sun shines culture. And if you just live there for just a few weeks, you'll see why. And the weather is completely unpredictable. But they were um, able to offer very high yields on the Icelandic currency, wasn't it? Isn't that one of the reasons why they were so successful in attracting this funding? It was the uh, the yield on the currency, which is another great lesson from financial history. People searching for yield suddenly find themselves taking risks that they didn't really fully appreciate. Yeah, that's right. The yield was at times 8 or 10 12% on government bonds. Iceland had really high inflation from uh, from the time of independence from Denmark, uh, I think around the year, so the beginning of the independence was 1918. And then one Icelandic krona was one Danish. And I think, and then there were a number of times where, where zeros were lopped off the ISK. But in that time, I think now it's like, if you if you would go back to the original ratio, I think it's, I want to say 100,000 to one, or maybe it's even more. So Iceland had historically very high out of control inflation. There were times in the eighties uh, when they had like 500% inflation in one year. Um, 
And so that meant, yeah, high, high yields, high inflation. When I lived there, you know, there's never, there was never a year without high inflation. Either in a boom, you have high inflation because it's a boom. So everyone can raise, especially in a small economy with low competition, people raise prices all the time. So, but then when, when, when we had the bust, the currency lost half its value. Now you have inflation for that reason as well, because everything that you import costs double. So it's just, it's a place of just eternal inflation. And so, so high I, I, look at, I look at the growth in the bank's balance sheets over this period, and I say, who on earth did they find to lend to, particularly in the local currency? And you've got to look at that and say, everybody must have been borrowing money because the balance sheets, in the, even in local currency, and they were lending overseas as well, was growing so incredibly rapidly. Uh, and what was, what was everybody using this money for? Presumably property and equities or basically just about anything. Yeah, there was, a, there was a sort of a mini leveraged debt buyout boom in Iceland in the first couple of years where they, they did sale and leasebacks on the, on the big home improvement chain. But I mean, these are places, this is maybe, this chain has maybe five stores. So these aren't huge uh, transactions. And, and um, there, was a, there was a guy who had made his fortune uh, creating, the, creating the first discount grocery chain in Iceland. He borrowed heavily from the banks and went on a, went on a debt-fueled uh, buyout spree into the UK and, in, and into Europe. And so there was a lot of lending into that. But increasingly, the lending, as you know from the book, increasingly the lending was, so by, by especially 2006, 7, 8, they were in so much trouble. The only people who could get loans at this point were the owners, the shareholders, the big shareholders, or uh, anyone who was willing to hide their shares against the loan. That, that's where the, the, loan find, the loans were, were going to by the end. So we should have put this in context to begin with. From the period you arrive in 04 to the peak in 07, the stock market goes up 330%. Yeah. Uh, I've lived through some of these, some very occasionally some as big as that. By the end of that, in my experience, there's few people who aren't invested in the stock market. But was there a constituency in Iceland who was, you know, the, the chicken littles who said, no, it, it has to fall apart? Or by the end, was everybody involved in this? <laughs> it was like me, because I, I moved there in 04 and I was asking coworkers. They, they were just cheerleaders. Everyone was cheerleading. And I was kind of like, yeah, but what, what's the valuation? Why do you think? And they were like, who cares, Jared? It's just, it's going up. Like, you know, it's kind of like Bitcoin or some of the crypto bros are today. Yeah. Um, and that's an even more naked example, right? Where there's no value. Okay. But well, I, I think it's an interesting point. So, so you're in that. You see that when you're raising issues of valuation, basically you're just told to shut up. Or there is somebody out there who's worked out an ingenious new way of valuing shares that tells you that you know this actually is perfectly legitimate. It's not just that they're going up. You need to think differently, Jared. You need to use different measures of valuation. And if you do that, actually things are incredibly cheap. Or was it just simply it's going up? Get on board. Well, there was a, there was a bit of I don't think there was any rigorous work to defend why the shares were where they were, but the banks were and the, these businessmen were jetting jetting. For example, the president of Iceland got sent to Davos. I think this was in I can't remember '06, and he gave a talk about how Iceland had solved the holy <laughs> found the holy grail. I'm not, I'm I'm paraphrasing here. It was it was the holy grail of finance type. He said we found ways to do deals faster and better. And that this is why the banks are so valuable. Well, the reason they did deals fast is that they barely did any due diligence. Um, they just did a lot of deals. They did any deal they could get. They did a lot of deals that continental banks or UK banks had passed on. 
Well, when I was a young man, I covered U.S. banks and a U.S. banker from the Midwest once said to me, he said, the only thing you have to know about banking is that if it grows like a weed, it is a weed. And uh, finding all those great new high quality credits that nobody else can find has proven not really to be the path to success and riches for bankers. And I think Iceland is obviously the classic example of that. But one of the, you know, there's so many fascinating things that happened in Iceland during this period. But there was a mini crash in 2006. Stock market fell 20%. Foreign analysts were coming in and a bit like you pointing out that, let's just say, values might be overdone. Mm -hmm. And the, the interesting thing is not that there was a mini crash. It's that it was reversed. And the stock market from the bottom of the mini crash to the absolute peak went from 5,500 to 9,000. So uh, all of us might encounter this again. So I guess the question is, how do you reverse a mini crash, Jared? And how can we all not be caught out by spotting the obvious and then watching the stock market not quite double but rise precipitously from a period when it seemed like the curtain was being lifted and, and reality was beginning to dawn well yeah that 2006 that mini quote unquote mini crisis was was the real that was it that was the that was the end i think um but this brings me to uh this is a great question because this is the kind of the central one of the central themes of the book and, and the piece of the story that I think hasn't really been explained, at least in English, um, anywhere, which is that the banks were buying their own shares every day on the market to keep the price up. And this went on, by some accounts, back to 1998 and for two of the banks when they were still partially government owned. This was baked into the DNA of the, of the banks. And as they grew so quickly, as they doubled their balance sheet every year, they crowded out everything else in the market. They became uh, 75% of the market and by some other measures, even more because they, they had affiliated companies also listed. So imagine a country where 90% of the market value is set by the participants themselves on a daily basis. It's, it's such a perversion of, you know, I mean, all, all markets are manipulated, right? But this is such a perversion. It's so far to the wall. I don't think it's really been seen. I, anywhere else and, and this and, was done in secret in secret, in secret. And, yeah. and, and and is against the laws yeah, right? yeah these were not well there's so there were different laws um by some accounts it wasn't fully illegal until 2007 uh there were at, at least the special prosecutor when he tried the cases he started from 2007 because that was the newest version of the european market abuse directive implemented in iceland but to my to my eye, a big part of the recovery from the 2006 crash was this uh, sustained buying to keep the shares moving in the right direction again. Yeah, well, once again, that's not unknown throughout history. Things start going the wrong way. Usually a group of people get together to try to stop it. This may have been the most successful in history, however, given that it not just stopped it, it pushed it way above its previous high. It couldn't be sustained, of course, but that must have been a very painful period for anybody who was bearish between that. Uh, uh, you know, middle of 2006 and towards the end of 2007. So there is that initial reaction to try and stop it, uh, which in this case was potentially too successful. Even with the benefit of hindsight, it's often difficult to know what the trigger was to say this was the absolute top and the absolute end of the whole thing. Having lived through it, having looked back, can you see something that happened towards the end of 2007? Was it what was happening globally that suddenly yeah, that was light on this that, that brought it to an end? That was more and more the, the problem was uh, was the unrolling of the of the subprime woes in the U.S. And I was working in one of the banks, I should say. I worked in Lundsbanke. I worked in their asset management uh, arm, which was a separately incorporated company, but we were inside the bank. It was fully captured by the bank called Lundsbanke. 
um, and yeah, people were nervous. This was, this was, this was daily, daily drama inside the bank. More and more, they were unable to, uh, to, to roll their, uh, to roll their debts over. And more and more, just even short term, as we get caught toward the end, even, even daily financing was, was not available. So one of the traits sounds like you're suggesting is that it was more difficult to finance, but it became more and more short term. So one of the things maybe we should look out for is when institutions are borrowing relatively long term, but find themselves increasingly having to borrow short term. And ultimately, as you say, even even overnight, they couldn't borrow. But, but you could see that happening, could you? You can see how it was getting, how the, the, the duration of their debt was getting shorter and shorter. Yeah, I'll give you an example, because I was I was managing money for a couple of years there. And this was absolutely crazy. Normally, when you do a um, a foreign currency forward over over some time period, you have to pay the interest rate differential, right? So, um, if you're, so, but in Iceland they had flipped, so they were so hungry in the Icelandic bank, they were so hungry for hard currency that they would pay you Icelandic yields on a dollar deposit for short term. So, so when you booked a, f- a foreign currency forward, normally, you know, you know, normally you you pay a penalty for that between the, the high yielding and the low yielding currency. But because I had some dollars in one of the one of the investment funds I managed, or some euros, I could I could do an FX trade with the FX guys and get like ten or fifteen, twenty percent annual annual yield on that dollar for like a week or two. That's how that's how. That's how scarce the dollars were in those days. I mean, it's a sign of extreme distress. Was it on the front page of the newspapers mm-hmm. that this is the price that the banks were having to pay for this credit? No, 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 not at all. And because you know, to having lived through it, even me working in the banks, I didn't know about the share. Nobody, I mean, the guys doing the manipulation and and the top executives in the banks knew about this because they were spending billions manipulating their shares, especially in the final year. But even those of us working in the bank, this was not common knowledge. And this is one of the things that made this manipulation so damaging for the whole country is that you, you, we went from one day to the next where the banks looked good. I mean, okay, their shares had dropped a lot from 2007 highs, but they still had as much value as they'd had in 2006. They still looked robust, big institutions. And in a day, they're worth zero. The market was never allowed to show that there was anything big coming. And this made the crash really, um, really a shock, like a physical shock to live through. So you are uh, a fund manager in a bank. And by April 2009, and just to run through the global chronology of this, we have uh, Lehman Brothers going in September 2008. And the bottom of the global stock market's March 2009. But in a very short period, you go from one seat to the regulator. Uh, maybe explain briefly how that happened and what you found when you got to the regulator in terms of preparedness to deal with this crisis. Yeah, so I actually left my banking job miraculously. My last, I resigned on my own. My last day was the 3rd of October 2008, and then the banks all crashed in three, three or four days the next week. Um, and so I had just gotten out, which made me a credible, because then... Th- unemployment, especially in the financial sector, but everywhere. I mean, unemployment went up, it quintupled in about a month in Iceland. Iceland always has low unemployment. It went up uh, 600%. And um, 
there was hundreds of people who wanted to work at the regulator. <laughs> Nobody wanted to work at the regulator before the crash. But suddenly that was the place to go. Um, and there was like 200 applicants for this one. They, they said they, they told me they were looking for one investigator and they had 190 applicants. Um, they ended up hiring two of us. And when we got in there, I mean, you can see this in the book a bit, but they, they, um, they just, I mean, I, I remember my first day was just an, it was just an empty, uh, desk with, with, with a couple of monitors and a telephone. And they said, okay, go investigate, you know? <laughs> uh, and I mean, at, at a later point when I wanted to, I wanted to forensically look at some emails from, from within one of the banks to look at some of these trading patterns and, and they didn't have any, they said, well, you just put it, put it into your outlook and, you know, you can tab through the emails in your outlook. Um, so there was no infrastructure for any, any kind of investigation. And the, and in, look, I don't want to pick on Iceland because I also worked at this time with other famous regulators. I mean, there were people in the SEC I worked with who did, didn't know what a credit default swap was. They didn't know why the CDS spread was important. Um, it was just... It was it was a world of lawyers checking boxes. So we know where it ends. Uh, more Icelandic bankers, certainly by out of population, go to jail anywhere else in the world, and probably even in nominal terms, not even relative to the size of the population. Yes. So it's a long and convoluted story as to, as to your role in that. But looking back, do you think there's something about Icelandic society that made it easier to get those convictions, or ultimately did it make it easier to get those convictions because they weren't very long convictions or why was Iceland on the face of it so successful where others failed and ultimately do you think it was successful in terms of this so that's a lot of questions trying to wrap that up but something happened in Iceland that didn't happen elsewhere it'd be good to try to understand why that 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 was the case Uh, having lived through it of course I, I only lived through the Icelandic crisis but I was reading the news about other other places the depth of this 2008 for us was was much much worse than it was in other other places um the you know getting back to the inflation all home mortgages in iceland at the time were either foreign currency loans or indexed to inflation and so the balance the principal balance on our mortgage went up maybe 50 percent in a couple of months uh, which means that your payments go up and, and uh it was a lot of people lost their cars, their houses, their, their, it was just, and we, we were worried about food and so on. I mean, it was really a dark, dark winter and that desperate, it was real desperate. It was close to social collapse. I think at some points, um, this is where Iceland has a strength in that it's a tight knit society. I think if this type of crash happened, like in the U S for example, where I grew up, I, I don't think it would hang together. Iceland did manage to hang together, but it was a dark time and the public was out for blood. They were demanding something be done. Um, and there were like daily demonstrations in front of the parliament for the whole winter in the, in the dark and cold of winter. So I think that energy is what led to the convictions. I think it was so dire. There was so much demand for something to be done. And there was a lot of, force behind that so i that's that's my read of it but by the time that, yeah go ahead just gonna say because it's a small society 
I mean, a very small society. I guess most people knew these bankers personally, knew where they lived, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, as a banker, maybe a short spell in jail, uh, some sort of retribution, some form of atonement may have been a safer place for me to be and <laughs> a safer process to go through than to you know live around the corner from people who'd had their homes repossessed. Well, a lot of these guys just left the country uh, for London or Luxembourg or other places uh, right away. And had to come back to uh, to face questions and and so on. Uh, but and their money left the country, obviously, and that that never came back. Um, or maybe it's coming back now as they come as they buy hotels and other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, they were they, they, there was a lot of anger. I would not have wanted to be one of them around in those few months. But they slowly came back, and it's a it's a forgiving place. So Iceland has righted itself. It's remarkable, really. So the government takes over these banks. I think they obviously inherit all the debt of those banks, foreign currency debt, GDP. I mean, I think the debt of the debt on a, on a, on assuming the liabilities of all these banks, the debt of the company is about six hundred percent of GDP, probably more. How do you get out of that? I mean, it, it was basically default on at least the obligations of these banks. Was that the secret to getting Iceland? And maybe you can say just a little bit about the role of capital controls. We. Mm-hmm are used to those today in the emerging markets. Mm-hmm. But Iceland, along with Cyprus and Greece, is one of the few developed world countries that has recently turned to them. So how did Iceland get out of that? And what role did capital controls play in the solutions to this unique situation because debt to GDP was so astronomically high? Yeah, the banks were about 11 times bigger than the country's GDP when they collapsed. And immediately what they did is they split the banks into old and new and where they it created three new banks out of thin air, basically, and they gave those three banks the domestic bank accounts and the domestic mortgages, and those three new institutions had then large IOUs to the old ones, which had collapsed, and then those old ones were wound down over the over the course of ten or twelve years, and they did have some they you know they had done a lot of lending in Europe they had some valuable assets, um, two of them paid off I think. 20, 25 percent uh, of their of their debtors, uh, 25 cents on the dollar, basically. Landsbanki paid the depositors in the UK and the Netherlands first, and then about everyone else got about, I think, five or 10 percent. It was much lower. The other two paid more. So that was a stable way to sort of um, wind those institutions down. And and the, the people who paid the biggest price were the debtors who took about a 75% haircut um, or, or more. Uh, and then the capital controls you asked, this was a, Iceland has the smallest independently controlled currency in the world. And this was really necessary because the currency was, was en route to losing all of its value. Or, I mean, it was just, it was inflating away like by the day. And so they, uh, the IMF came in and one of the things that they did was just, froze so you could not um i mean this was only lifted i want to say 2017 maybe 16 17 is sometime in there but for almost a decade you couldn't send you couldn't buy euros in iceland unless you had a plane ticket uh you of course if you traveled you could if you're one of the few who had enough money to travel then when you're abroad you can use an atm you can take you can use your credit card but in the country you can't get them you can't. Uh, you couldn't buy any investment in any other currency. So, local investors—they're stuck. You have to. You have to keep the money home. 
And, and the legacy for this for Iceland politically is that the view is that was our time in the sun. Turns out it was fleeting. It's over now. Let's move on. Or there is a lasting legacy of distrust, do you think, amongst the population that is pervading politics? And, you know, will, will Iceland live in the shadow of this for a generation? Or is it already passed? And are Icelanders the sort of people who can very quickly sort of move on? Or has it left a permanent political score? I think we're all debating this in relation to the great financial crisis with the things we see today. But it would be natural that every society would be slightly different as to the uh, the legacy. So what, is there something different about Iceland? And what is the legacy of this? Uh, maybe more in the sociopolitical sphere for Iceland? I can't. I, I myself left in 2012 because after I did these investigations, I felt my own opportunities there to do anything else were quite limited. So I have not unfortunately been on the ground for almost 10 years there. I can say that with the release of my book, I've seen two very different perspectives at the same time. Um, there's a sort of the perspective of the elites is like, who is this foreigner? Like, what do we care about this old story? You know, this is, this is all solved and done, but there's a, there's an underground, very angry, another perspective, uh, which I see more uh, people write me, people I've never met writing me on Facebook and so on. And they're saying, you know, this is, this is unbelievable. This is a typical Icelandic story. Um, these guys always get away with this, this type of, uh, real anger. Um, I think my book is one of the first times where the whole kind of the whole arc has been laid out for people. And I think as that gets translated into Icelandic, which will hopefully happen this year, I think um, there might be some more reckoning with this old story. But certainly the 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 banner message from the from the Icelandic elite is like, no, no, this is this is no problem. This is this is fine. Um, the country really, to to my mind, the big tragedy of this is the, the principal way that the country was able to bounce back was just to increase tourism massively. So pre-COVID, there were 10 tourists per year per, for every man, woman, and child in the country. Um, it's it's completely changed the landscape of the city, and, and anywhere desirable that you would want to live has now become an Airbnb. I mean, it's 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 been a drastic change, but it it does bring hard currency back to the back to the country. So there are many wonderful things about your book, Iceland's Secret, and we've discussed, you know, the, the boom and the bust. But really one of the more interesting things behind it, there is your growing understanding of how Iceland works and how it's slightly different from New England. <laughs> yeah, but it's different and it's not different, you know. I mean, I I tried to make the book um I, I think I think a lot of what happens in the book is Iceland is such a small place that you can see you can see trends that are are active in bigger places much more easily. And so Iceland has corruption and it's much easier to see that corruption. But that made me look at where I came from in a new way. So, oh, okay. Uh, you know, um, yeah. So I think the book hopefully has, is a more of a universal tale. Um, yes, it's nice to read about Iceland and it's a great, interesting place, but I think what happened there is, 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 is a warning for the rest of us. Yeah, well, I mean, what we're about at the Library of Mistakes is learning from lessons of the past. And the reason that Iceland Secret is such a great book is that having lived through a few of these things myself, it just seems to have everything in a little microcosm. And as you say, so much more easily trackable 
and observable. And of course, all of them have something slightly new and different. But on the whole, the uh, the pattern is the same, and it's uh, it's a hell of a story to see it in this uh, in this extreme case. But also from someone who had a front row seat, which isn't always the case. I think this is the best personal story on the great financial crisis. Uh, and I can say that, of course, because I'm looking at my bookshelves here, and we have them by Ben Bernanke, Timothy Geithner, Hank Paulson. But of course, they have a reputation, and they have an angle, and they have a yeah. something to talk about. But you're, uh, well, I mean, I hope you don't take it the wrong way. A foot soldier in all of yes. this, and the, the views of the foot soldiers from the trenches are, I think, somewhat more interesting than the views of the generals from the chateaus. So it's a it's a great read. It reads like a thriller. We've discussed this before. I think one day it will be a movie. And, uh, you know, I, I recommend anybody uh, read it. Most people I try to get enthused about financial history say, well, it's so boring. Well, let me assure you, uh, Iceland's Secret is definitely not boring, more of a thriller than financial history. And I, I recommend it. Anything you'd like to sort of conclude on that, that, that I haven't touched on, but you think is an important lesson, perhaps, from what happened there that would help us all become not just better investors, but potentially better citizens. I mean, our job, I think, through financial history is maybe to ask the right questions. Having left Iceland, did you say, here are the questions I will ask wherever I live in the planet from here on in. Here are the stones that I will turn over. Here, here's where I really need to look to, uh, to do my job as an investor and a citizen in a better way. Yeah, well, it's funny because I ended up in Switzerland and one of the uh, pretty senior person at one of the biggest banks here told me, you weren't writing about Iceland at all, but you were you were writing about where we're living. Um, but I, uh, one message I really would like to, to leave with is that I, I think, um, it would be very easy actually with a little bit of public pressure, the way we had, we had a little public pressure in Iceland for a couple of years. It would be very easy to clean up financial markets and make them work, you know, a thousand times better than they do today. Um, but there's no, there's no impetus for that. Unfortunately, it takes, it seems to take a crash of this magnitude to wake up the public to the importance of the financial system. Um, I'm hoping that with this book, people will get a little bit, I, I targeted it. It's not, it's not written for economics professors. It's written for every person. And I'm hoping that books like this will help, or maybe a movie will help people see that, Hey, this this is this is our responsibility. This is our shared resource, and we need to make sure it's working the right way. I, I tend to agree with that. It is worrying. We've now had two huge financial crises, and so far it hasn't been enough. So I dread to think how big the next one's going to have to be, Jared, and uh, let's hope we all don't have to go through a deep, dark winter before what you say comes to pass. Jared, thanks very much for joining us on this inaugural podcast by the Library of Mistake, Iceland's Secret, published by Harriman. The least boring financial history book of all time, I think. <laughs> Thanks, Russell. And uh, it's del delighted to speak to you. Thank you very Thanks. much. To keep up to speed on events at the Library of Mistakes and to read pieces from our collection, please search for and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to the series? Simply search for Library of Mistakes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast platform of your choice.